0: Okay, just a, a little recap here uh, to to kind of keep everything in context because we, we, you can get so deep into something that you uh, you lose the you lose the forest for the trees. So this epistle is written to Hebrews who were they were Hellenistic. So there were two sects of Hebrews around this time. Jewish people. They were. Palestinian Jews and they were Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were those obviously who had been influenced by Hellenism, by the Greek culture. They spoke Greek, they lived Greek lives, and uh, they were more affluent and they were more open to, to the, uh, the different, all the different thinking that came in with Hellenistic culture. The Palestinian Jews tended to be more orthodox, uh, they tended to be more conservative, and they tended to be the poorer classes of Jews, so this letter, this letter, we don't know who the author was, uh, was addressed to Hellenistic Jews who had converted to, who had received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and uh, and they were they were wrestling with some things. So as I mentioned, you know, when we started this study, that for 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 the for the Jewish people. When you start talking about a man coming and having more authority than angels, it becomes a real struggle for them, because most people don't know this. But on Mount Sinai, the law was mediated to Moses through angels, right? So there, and it w- th- we looked at several texts that demonstrated that there were a plurality of angels on Mount Sinai who mediated the law uh, from God to Moses, and so <coughs> angels. are are a very, very big thing uh, with Jews, even with Jewish people, even to to today. So the author of Hebrews basically goes along the following lines. First off, he proves the divinity of Christ, right? Right off the bat, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about uh, the revelation that came in times past to the fathers by the prophets through various means, visions, dreams, so on. But in these last days, he's spoken once and for all through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and expresses how the Old Testament expressed the divinity of the Messiah. Even in Jewish thought today, the Messiah is not thought to be or will be thought to be divine. Judaism today still believes that at any given age, there will be someone who would be qualified to be Messiah. But that Messiah would be fully a man. So this, this caused a bit of a struggle. And so right away he launches into the divinity of the Messiah. So, and from there he goes uh, from from the divinity of the Messiah how the the revelation that that came the final revelation that came through Jesus Christ was superior to that of angels, right? And so it's a superior to that of angels. Then in weeks past we looked at how it was superior to. Um, what was given through Moses even today Moses is considered to be the top prophet in Judaism <coughs> it's all about Moses and so uh, in in Revelation yeah, Revelation Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 3 he's talking about how the ministry of Christ how Christ in his divinity as the Messiah as the the divine human Messiah is superior to angels is superior to Moses and then uh, we we got into the third part, how Jesus as the Messiah is superior to the Levitical priesthood, so the priesthood. Okay, now interspersed in all of these things are five primary warnings that are delivered through the book of Hebrews, right? And so just to recap, uh, just to recap the, uh, the first few that we've covered so far, in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 let's start there so now as I mentioned a few minutes ago the discourse of the divinity of Christ and how Christ is superior to the angels so the first primary warning comes in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 where we read therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away and uh, you'll, you'll find that this is a a common metaphor in the New Testament that this that term "lest we drift away" is actually a nautical term, and so it, it uh, w- what it means is, or or what it demonstrates is that this drifting away happens outside of our field of perception, right? And so the author is saying here, you got to be paying attention, you got to be diligent, you got to be locked on this stuff because if you're not there's a danger of you drifting away and you will not perceive why you're drifting away that you're drifting away right so he goes on and says in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 2 for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first be- began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us By those who heard him. So that word neglect there means to not be paying attention to, right? So while this while this epistle is written primarily to Hellenistic Jews of the time, there is meaning here for us because this is a danger that we all face. And so we have to stay locked on. uh, We have to stay locked on of the faith. We have to stay locked on to God's word, because if we don't. There is a danger that we will begin to drift away, and if we begin to drift away, most often than not, that will happen outside of our field of perception. And then we find out that we've drifted so far away that now we've brought ourselves to the point where God has to correct us to bring us back in line. Okay, so that was the first warning. The second warning comes over in, uh, let me find it. Warning number two comes over in Hebrews chapter 3. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 7. Now, this is talking about Moses and the the Israelites who came out of of, uh, slavery in Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion uh, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my work 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not <laughs> enter my rest." And So uh, we, don't, you know, we don't often consider the mathematics of what is, what is being talked about here. So I was talking about this with my students the other day. Uh, at the school and uh, I asked him the question I said let's suppose that the number of people who came who came out of Egypt in the exodus were they estimate some anywhere between three to four million people okay three to four million people came out of came out of Egypt in the exodus proximate right ballpark so I asked him I said how many of those so let's assume that, Let's, let's say 4 million people came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And let's say maybe 2, 2 million of those people were under 18, were children under 18. How many of that 2 million over 18 actually ended up entering the promised land? Two. Over eighteen, only two people. Who would the third be? Well, he would probably be under eighteen.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, 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 what the author is saying here is again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. If God is speaking to you that you should be in a place that you're not at or that you're somehow lagging behind in, your, in, your, in the progress of your faith, God doesn't call us to just come and sit in a pew on a Sunday. He calls us into his service. He bought, he bought, he bought us and paid for us with the blood of his son. He owns us. He's the master. We're the servant. He calls us, he calls us to serve him. That's top priority, priority one in our lives. But, that can slip away, that, that priority in our mind and in our lives can slip away very easily in the busyness of life. So, we are required to stay focused on God's Word, to stay focused on what it is that He has called us to do. And so, there was a reason why God brought the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He brought them out of bondage in Egypt because He had a task for them. One, they were to, first of all, go to Sinai, receive the law. They were to serve him. They were to be his people. But God was going to send them into the land to wipe out the Canaanites. You see? God brought them into Egypt to increase their strength sufficient enough to go in and conquer the land and take possession of the land that God had promised to their father Abraham. Right? But they forgot that. In the wilderness, marching around in the wilderness they forgot all about that and so so the quote there is if you're hearing something similar if you're hearing God say to you look you're really not where you ought to be by now then, pay, then that's God saying something to you listen to that voice because you may not hear that voice tomorrow right okay so that brings up warning number two in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 beware brethren Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, these words are, n- there's nothing in here that is spoken to unbelievers, but it's spoken to believers. An evil heart of unbelief um, in departing from the living God. So it's talking about f- it's this whole process of slipping away. The, you know, the, the theological term is apostasy, slipping away into apostasy. Uh, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so these are things that they needed to be diligent about, and this is something that we need to be diligent about. Okay, so he continues on, and now he launches into, in the next, in the next chapter, he launches into the discourse on how the ministry of Christ as the Messiah is superior the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Judaism. But he has to stop, and he has to stop, and he has to bring another rebuke against them, because now he's getting into the discussion of this priesthood called the Melchizedekian priesthood. Right? So this is is a whole other ball of wax, and it's all on a, a whole other level, but he feels that they aren't ready. He has to stop they're not ready to take in what he's about to say about this priesthood of Melchizedek so um, jumping ahead to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12 we read for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food so by this time in their faith, they should have been teachers. They should have grown to the point where they were actively discipling new converts. They, had, they, were, they should have been taking their role in, in discipling new converts, but they had regressed to the point of spiritual infancy again. You see? That's what happens is if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. There's no, there's no static position in Christianity. Either you're going forward or you're going backwards. There's no in-between. He goes on and says in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, uh, leaving the elementary discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, this is Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God of the doctrines of baptism of laying on of hands of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment so notice here notice here that the author is saying it's time to move past this stuff you guys should be way past this stuff Now, look at that list again. Uh, He says they're elementary principles. These are like Christianity 101 principles, right? This is the the ground floor of the faith as far as knowledge goes. Um, Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. How many how many believers do you know today that could accurately discourse those principles and talk about them? Go ahead. To laying on hands. What does that mean? Laying on, the yeah, yeah. It's basically con- consecrating. It's like how you consecrate someone to the mit- to the work of the ministry, right? So it's not only the consecration, but there are prerequisites before you can consecrate. So if you want to look at something like that, you can look at the way the seven deacons in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 6, how they were selected to serve. Okay? All right. Okay. At least that's the answer that I'd give you off the top of my head. Okay? So these are elementary principles. But look at what he says in verse... In verse, um, in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. So for years, I read that as, well, you know, we got to do other things now. And if I get time, I'll get back to it in the future. But that's not what that verse is saying. That verse is actually saying that God may not permit you from advancing. That God may chastise you in that way by neglecting his word, by neglecting, you know, his call that he may lock you into a state of spiritual immaturity. It's got nothing to do with salvation, but it's got everything to do with rewards. Yes. So, to parallel, Catecharmia and going into the land, God may decide that you're going to go on a 42-year journey. Yeah. And that goes nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a this is a this is a big thing, right? And we talked about we talked about well, oh, you know, okay. So I'm locked in spiritual immaturity. I'm still going to get to heaven anyway. So you know what? What does it matter? You know, but there's a real there's a real loss there. First of all, there's a loss of the fellowship that you can have with God here and now. I mean, it's real. It's tangible. You know, y- it's tangible. You know, and, and, and God, God, God speaks to you not not in an audible voice, but he speaks to you through providence. You know, I mean, you just know when God has done something, you know. But you have to have the spiritual sensitivity to pick it up and to notice it. Okay, so that's a very real problem. So, you know, he, he, goes, at, he goes at them about that for a while, and then eventually... He picks up, he goes, okay, now that I've warned you about this, I have faith that you will make this right now, that you will start advancing in your in your walk with Christ, starting advancing in your faith. Now let's move on, and let's get into this Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay.
1: So what do you see as the actual statement of the third one?
0: What
1: verse is
0: uh, it? and... S- yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm not sure if that's at even one of the primary warnings. I think it is. But I would say verse 6, 6-1 six to 6-3. Six okay? I, I have so much writing in my book that I can't even read it anymore, so I'll have to <laughs> get my magnifying glass when I get home and look at it. All right, so now that takes us into the priesthood of Melchizedek. All right. So he, he goes back into that and... In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham paid a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here men receive tithe, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay. So so now, the author is demonstrating to them that this priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, is superior and supersedes the priesthood of Levi, the priesthood of Aaron. Now, think about this for a moment. The the Levitical priesthood, who was the Levitical priesthood for? Was it for all mankind? The Levitical priesthood was restricted to the Jews, right? So, what priesthood was there for the Gentiles? Doug?
1: There was no priesthood. Or it was all pagan
0: priesthood. Okay. It was false well, well, actually, yeah. Well, actually, if we consider that the priesthood of Melchizedek goes all the way back to Adam, mm-hmm. then there was a priesthood. So there was a priesthood, in, in effect, and that priesthood was high. was It was higher than the priesthood of Levi, right? And so, and so it starts with Adam and progresses forward, and it was a priesthood that was superior because even the priesthood of Levi paid tithes to that priesthood throughout through Abraham. So it was a superior priesthood, and. And it preceded the Aaronic priesthood. And so we talked about this over the last couple of weeks. You know, Jerusalem at this time was a Jebusite city. And this Melchizedek, this guy, Melchizedek is not a name, it's just a title. It means king of righteousness, right? And so there was a, a succession of priests who walked in this line, this Melchizedekian priest line. And just like the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood could only pass from one generation to the next upon the death of the current priest, right? So we looked at that over the last two weeks. Okay. All right. I'm just cramming like a bunch of stuff in here. But, yeah, you should go back and see the videos. If There's a ton of stuff in there that I'm going over. And so... So this priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, was superior to, prior to, and superior to the Levitical priesthood. Okay. All right. All right. Now let's pick it up at verse 11. I'm going to get through this chapter tonight. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron, okay? And so, and so, even you know, you asked me last week, I think, or two weeks ago, what do the what do the what do what's current Judaism's thinking about this Melchizedekian priesthood? Well, if you read the commentaries, what you find is they believe that that the Melchizedekian priesthood actually morphed into the Aaronic priesthood because it had to. Because they wouldn't be able, it wouldn't fit into their theology that you have this priesthood that precedes it and supersedes it running concurrently, at least for a time, right? Okay, all right, so, okay, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. For he of whom these things spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man had officiated at the altar. And so the, the priests, the Levitical priests, came from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. No priests come from the line of Judah. Judah was the line of kings. Levi was the line of priests. But interestingly enough, Melchizedek, that, that Melchizedek that Abraham encounters back in Genesis chapter 12, or is it? I think it's 14, maybe. That, that priest was not only a priest, but he was a king as well. So you had the office of king and priest there. So while, while the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood had to come from the tribe of Levi, it was separate from, from the tribe of Judah. And yet Jesus comes in the Melchizedekian line as both king and priest, and he comes out of the line of Judah, out of the kingly line. Okay. Let me go on. Okay. For verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshy commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God and this is where we got to last week and so the hope so so it's it's we kind of have to it's hard for us to make the cultural shift to put ourselves in the position of a Jewish believer who is hearing these things that all of the things that they have believed and held dear their entire life are in a sense being dismantled before them. Right? And so their hope was in angels, their hope was in Moses, their hope was in the Levitical priesthood. But all of those things are are not ultimately that which brings eternal life, right? So having had their legs knocked out from under them, he says that there but there is a better hope. You have a better hope. You have a hope of an eternal priesthood. Okay. Now let's pick it up in the last few verses. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said, The Lord has sworn you will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the Aaronic priesthood was not was not guaranteed or enacted with an oath, but this priest, the priesthood of Melchizedek was, and it was God Himself who gave an oath. And what was the penalty for breaking an oath? Nowadays, there's no penalty with it, but it was death, right? And uh, you know the the whole concept of the covenant right i mean i've heard you say it from the pulpit a multitude of times you cut a covenant right when you cut a covenant it involved blood right because the parties in the covenant were swearing by a blood oath that if either one of them broke the terms of the covenant the one who was the offended party had the right to take the life of the one who broke the covenant and so and so god here the father Is putting his very character behind this promise that this priest, this Melchizedekian line, which is both prior, superior, and supersedes, brings a far better hope than the hope of the Levitical priest line. Okay. Okay, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become surety. That word surety means a guarantee of a better covenant. also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make, an intercession, make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Okay, let's just look at that part in the notes because I think I broke down some of those words for you. Bottom on page, what page? Bottom of page, Bottom of page two. Okay. Bottom of page two. I'll just read those verse and comment on, you know, what I did with the words there. Verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So in his eternal, unchangeable priesthood, Jesus is holy, that is righteous, morally good. Men, even at the best, try to be good, but often fail. This could never happen with Jesus. He is harmless, that is no guile, nor no ulterior motive, and no duality, right? We all know what duality is, and we've expe- we've experienced duality, and there are times that we are we can, you know, we we can be dualistic in that, you know. I think everybody knows what I mean. Undefiled, he was never corrupted by sin, separate from sinners in a class all his own, because he has no sin nature, higher than the heavens, he has been given the highest place of honor. Verse 27 who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Since he has no sin nature and therefore no sin, he does not have to offer up sacrifices on on his own behalf before he he approaches the true Holy of Holies. We will see, when we go further into the book, that Jesus did with his blood need to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle. Which is interesting, right? And you start thinking about the heavenly. So we know that the tabernacle in the wilderness was a copy and shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. But that true tabernacle in heaven was defiled. And Jesus had to purify that tabernacle with his own blood. So it begs the question, how and when was that tabernacle uh, defiled? In the rebellion of Satan. Satan. It says in, I think it's Ezekiel, yeah, it's Ezekiel, either Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14, that he polluted his sanctuaries. Where was Satan's sanctuaries? He was the covering cherub. The covering cherub. So it was necessary that Christ, with his blood, should also purify the heavenly tabernacle. We'll see that. He gets into that later on here in the book of Hebrews. It's really interesting stuff. Okay. He offered up his own body as a sacrifice for sins on our behalf, and because that sacrifice was offered as part of an eternal covenant, it was only needed to be offered once and for all. Okay. Verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, that is the oath of the Father, which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. Okay. So, let me just read the conclusion here. Going back to verse 25. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. To save means to rescue and to heal, and to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, or the superlative. No matter what you are going through or what you will go through in the future, Christ can and will rescue you from that. A person that needs to be rescued is a person who is no longer able to do anything to help him or herself. That's really our position, guys. We don't often think about it. That's our position. And think about all the people around you that you care about that are without Christ. That's their position. There's absolutely nothing that they can do to rescue or help themselves. Nothing. The only thing that they can do is if God sends you their way to share God's word with them and that God is working in their heart already to make the hearing of that word effectual to start to get them to think about where they're headed here in an instant, in a moment. This happens along two planes that are interconnected, internal and external. Because we still have sin in our flesh, this flesh leads us into things that bring external distress and consequences. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter seven, verses 13 to 25, that conflict, right? Let's look there for a moment. Let's look at that conflict. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's me all the way, you know? Yeah. In Romans chapter 7, now tell me when I read these words that this is not you, too. Just for some context here, uh, Paul is discoursing the law and the effect, what the purpose of the law was, and its effect on men or its effect on those to whom it was given. The law was not given to us as Gentiles. We have no part in this. None of the law has any application to us as Gentiles. We were excluded from those covenants of hope. Okay, Romans chapter 7, verse 13, he's discussing all this. And he says, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, that is the commandment, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law, the law of Moses, is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. You find yourself in those words? We all find ourselves in those words, right? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Okay? Alright. So that's as far as I'll go with that. But I think we're all familiar with the struggle. So, So there is an external and internal consequence that arises when we fail to do what God has called us to do. right? We find ourselves under that kind of turmoil. right? Okay. All right. Christ, back to the notes, Christ can and will hear us. You can read in Paul's words the brokenness he felt for his sin. And then you can go and read the penitential Psalms. I've given you one there, Psalm 38. Our daily view of personal sins are like standing off in the distance and looking over the peaks of mountains. The peaks seem very far off and thus small. Then God visits us and shows us how big and the depth of our sin and its consequences. When you find yourself in this place, you really come to understand David's words. It's in that place where it not for the grace and mercy of God through Christ, despondency and death would surely come. So no matter what you or I are struggling with, the internal, that is the realization of sin, realization that we have become apathetic, the doubt that arises, the confusion, the despair, the depression, we can make our approach to God the Father through Christ. External, whether it be having to deal with external consequences of sin or of health issues or issues that plague us in the world, we can make our approach to God the Father through Jesus Christ. God the Father will always accept us. He wants to hear our cries for help, most especially when this world and our sin break us. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy places with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. We have this because of Jesus, our high priest, because we have this better priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, that's as far as I'm going tonight. Next week, we'll break into chapter 8. There was a lot of review. Because you can get lost in all of this, so it's important to try and keep everything in context. Okay, look at that. I'm done early. Any any questions? It's a lot to chew on. All the videos are up on the YouTube page. Um,
1: They're great to listen
0: to. Oh, okay. Good. All right. Good. And uh, if you don't have a complete set of notes and you want a complete set of notes, I'm already on like. I don't know, there's maybe like seventy pages here already. Seventy page outline. I think the whole outline of the book of Hebrews is somewhere around two hundred and fifty pages. But um Yeah, I have a digital. So if you want a digital, uh, I'd love digital because now I don't have to print them for you, you know. Like but Okay. All right. So wh- as I said, what I've been doing is I've done a complete re there was I think probably four or five years ago, I preached verse by verse through the entire book of Hebrews. So I took those notes through that time. It took me one year to preach through the book of Hebrews. And I redid the study. I re-exposited the text and I redid the study. And so as I go along, I'm modifying the notes from back then and updating them. So I'm updating them session by session. So if you want them, if you can pass around a, a list of email, um, email addresses. I'll email them to you, and as I'll see if I can compress them into a zip file. But this is just seven pages, seven chapters, out of a 13 chapter book. Huh? Is everybody here in band? The Grace Sovereign Grace Church band. Okay. Well, you guys figure it out. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. As long as I don't have to print.
1: I'll print. talk with we'll figure it out. Yeah,
0: I just printed up a complete set for Al because Al wanted to set a set of notes, so. Well, so Any questions? Uh, I have a question, but not about this. Do you have Revelation, your Revelation notes on digital? But I've redone a Revelation, too. I've done a complete restudy of Revelation. And uh, I have figured out how that book flows.
1: Can we do that next? Well, I don't know. We'll see.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, because that's the one that everybody always wants to do. What about Ezekiel? I was thinking... uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah. I've just been spent the last year studying Ezekiel and Isaiah.
1: But Ezekiel has a lot to do with revelation.
0: So we'll see. Um, You know, small groups are going to start up and stuff again, and we'll see. We'll see. Any questions? Okay. I don't know if I have a response. uh Yeah.
1: ...underneath the authority of Messiah. Right. So there's, there's a whole mindset shift for the Jewish people. I mean, this is talking, basically, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to pull back the veil that Isaiah 6 put on the Jewish people. Make them, their heart's heavy, make their, them dull. Yeah. But I and
0: I and I think that's and that's absolutely true, but I think that there is a what he what the author is actually doing is un- is taking apart a biasness too. Right? right? So so, you know, if you're familiar with Judaism, you know, it's all of those stories of Abraham and Gehenna and uncircumcised, this and that and you know that that, uh, this One of the things that I'm studying in Ezekiel now is there are seven excuses when God, is, when God pronounces the third coming invasion of Babylon, right? So there were three invasions, right? Um, the when he's announcing the judgment, he's actually going through seven excuses that... In, in No, in Ezekiel. Seven excuses that the people bring as to why they weren't going to come under judgment, even though they had already been invaded twice by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so uh, one of them was that they were not going to come under the judgment of God because of the righteousness of the fathers, right? Which is something that's, that still plays predominant in Judaism, right? So, so now you think about that and you think about the Levitical priesthood, right? The Gentiles were excluded right uh, even though even though in the temple there was the court of the Gentiles, right but that had become what It had become the marketplace Mark money changes this and that so there was no room allowed for the Gentiles. but now this priesthood of Melchizedek was a priesthood that was prior to the establishment of Of the Jewish nation uh, or the Jewish identity and he's called a priest of God so he was a priest not only on behalf of those who would be the seed of Abraham but he was a priest on behalf of humankind so this is a better hope it's a better hope for us we were no hope we had no hope right and so I think the author is is taking apart some of their biasness, and maybe their, you know, the 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 exclusivity, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. They are the people of God, no doubt. They are, God, that's the only chosen nation on the face of the earth. The United States is not the new Israel. It's not a chosen nation by God, right? Except for maybe destruction, okay? But, but, Aside from that, God has a plan that has that been set in motion for all of humanity, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And he's having to recalibrate their thinking. I think that's part of what's happening here is he's recalibrating their thinking. It's not just you that God is interested in. He's interested in all men. they didn't so anyway as far as gump would say that's all i have to say about that